0: Welcome to podcast number 118 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is January 5th, 2021, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. My guest today is Andy Maslin. Andy was born in Nottingham, England, and after leaving university with a degree in psychology, he worked in business for 30 years as a copywriter. In his spare time, he plays blues guitar. He lives in Wilshire He is an author of the Detective Ford series. It is my pleasure to bring Andy Maslin on the show today. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career, spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good prime novel on my coffee table or bedstead We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. On alternating weeks, we are introducing a new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, featuring successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice for those just starting out or for those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share a few of their favorite detective stories and sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode of My Favorite Detective Stories is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist. Odessa on the Delaware, introducing Marsha O'Shea, my debut novel. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. The homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak, waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marcia O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami drug cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but is now drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. I'm excited to talk about Odessa on the Delaware, and for my readers and listeners, it is now free at my website, www.johnhoda.com. I'm glad to offer this book to you as a way of introducing you to FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, because the series with her continues with Clearwater Blues, Detroit Wheels, and West Reading Traffic. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. It's great to be here, John. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, you're quite welcome. I'm so happy that you are here today. As we record this, it is in in America, Black Friday, November 27th, 2020. How was the weather in Salisbury, England, in the UK?
1: Yeah, no, it's really cold. I was out in the dog's I have very short hair props and, you know, I needed a hat today. Really proper wintry weather.
0: As I uh, sit here in southwestern Connecticut today, I had a rare opportunity to sit outside at my favorite coffee shop, and struggle with the short story I'm trying to put the ending on. I was outside, and that was nice. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the last days of this year that I'll be able to say that I can sit outside without being bundled up and be able to put my fingers on a keyboard. So it was a nice day. So Andy, I, I need you to tell me how you got started with your writing and walk me through your writing career. Don't leave out anything about Stella Cole or Gabriel Wolf, and, of course, D.I. Hunter. Ford. Bored. I apologize, sir. That's okay. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry about that. I did pretty well. I I got two out of three. You got two out of three is not bad. Two
1: for three. We'll, We'll give you that. You know, my story starts when I was six years old. I wrote a little science fiction story, only about 30 words. Really, what I did was I dictated it to my Uncle John. On my dad's side of the family, you know, there's a lot of writers, a lot of creative folk, musicians. And it was about this alien on this planet and the line I remember was that the clouds go kapow. Mm-hmm. And when I'd finished it, you know, we decorated it with some sticky paper. And he said, I'll give it back to you when you're 15. And that was, you know, I'm six at the time. This is an unimaginable time into the future. And every time I saw him after that, I said, can I have the story? He said, well, yeah, when you're 15. So he kept his word. And, you know, nine years later, he gave it back to me. And I still have this very... Fragile yellow piece of paper. Oh, nice! With a story, and you know, I've been sort of writing ever since. Always written a lot of poetry and short fiction, like you were saying, short stories. I did some journalism at university. That was what I wanted to be. Incidentally, when I graduated, I wanted to be a journalist and I sent off hundreds of letters to local papers, didn't get anywhere and got into marketing instead. And it was always the copywriting side of that Mm. trade that interested me. So for 25, 30 years, I've been a professional writer, but writing, you know, websites and advertising copy, but always in the background, you know, submitting poems and short fiction. You know, I got a couple of honorable mentions and things like that about Five years ago, I started a novel writing game. You know, I had an idea for a story that became the first Gabriel Wolf book, who's a sort of ex-SAS guy. And since then, I've launched, as you said, Stella Cole, a sort of female, very scarred, psychologically scarred detective. And then in the last couple of years with Amazon, publishing the Detective Ford series. And I have, to date, I think published about 20 novels, something like that. It's about four a year in... Including A Real Outlier, which was a vampire book called Blood Loss. I've always been a massive fan of vampire fiction and cinema. And I did a kind of modern retelling of Dracula with the original sort of Bram Stoker style of letters and, you know, oddments of paper documents that you read them in sequence and it tells this sort of modern story where the 1% are the vampires. In fact, 1% of the 1% are actually seven ancient vampire families. I, to be honest, it sold about like you know 300 copies. It's kind of not really the genre that I'm known for, but it was just the one book that I kind of really had to get out of my system, I guess.
0: Oh, sure. I have one of those. It's good that you did. Nothing was hurt by it, and there's no... You know Sunk cost bias in saying that you wrote it. And as a standalone, you could play around with trying to advertise it. You, you say the Ford book, which is going to be a series, is now with Amazon Publishing. Would that be their uh, Thomas and Mercer in print? Indeed. Yeah, Thomas and Mercer. Congratulations for you, champagne, cork, pop. You know, that's great. Mm-hmm. But you put in the effort, you put in the time. And you, you did what you said you were going to do with Gabriel and Stella, and, and that probably put you on their radar scope, no doubt.
1: But yeah, I mean that's how I got the deal. Was I submitted? It was the third volume in what was originally just going to be a trilogy for Stella called Hit and Done, and I submitted it for the Kindle Storyteller Awards in 2018, and I got a really nice call out of the blue. I was actually driving, and I had to sort of get home and bring the guy back to say that I'd been shortlisted, which was amazing. A self published author, you know, in three years in, went along to the big party and I didn't win. I mean, went to a really nice girl called Hannah. And kudos to her. But I was at the sort of party, I was talking to this woman and I said, Who do I have to talk to here at Amazon about a publishing deal? And she said, Well, my name's Laura Deacon. I'm the publishing director. You can talk to me. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? Now, she's now gone to Book but at the time she was at Amazon. And she was really lovely, very generous with her time, as I found all of the Amazon people. be, And she introduced me to Jane Snellgrove, who was one of their commissioning editors, you know, acquisitions editors, who subsequently introduced me to my editor, Jack Butler. Okay. And we did the deal last year, 2019, right at the beginning of last year. And I have, you know, it was initially a three book deal. So we're just getting to that point now. But yeah, it felt like a good day in my life, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Hey, listen, you know, as I'm treading this path, the indie author route, that someday, hopefully, I might get a uh, knock on my door or a a phone call, as they say, and from uh, the nice folks at Thomas and Mercer, and they say, well, we'd like to invest in you, Mr. Hoda. You know, know, I
1: I think increasingly now it's going this way, where you build a track record, you build a readership and a brand as an indie. mm -hmm. And it's how I think publishers are increasingly going to try and take risk out of the equation. Because you know, historically, margins in publishing have been way for thin. It was an old joke. How do you make a small fortune out of publishing? Start with a large fortune, right? I've never, never and, heard know, that. I, I goes for yachting as well. But I yeah. mean, you know, it, it's always had that sort of you know feeling about it. And I think you know, if you go with an indie author, you know, they've got a following. They can say, look, there's three books here, and they're selling like this. You're a kind of bit more of a known quantity.
0: No, I get it. No, I, I, I appreciate it. I right, thank you. But I haven't had a chance to dive into Stella much. You did talk about Gabriel being XSAS. Tell me a little bit about Stella, if you don't mind, just briefly. Of course.
1: Yeah, well, she is Metropolitan Police, so based in, in central London. And they have here what they call the fast track, which is where you can be pushed through the various promotion grades fairly quickly. All you know her career. This was kind of like the backstory before book one. But always going to plan. But then there was a hit and run accident, and her husband is killed. She has a year off compassionate leave. And when she comes back, she basically off books. Reinvestigates his death because something didn't smell right about the way the court case went, and she uncovers a conspiracy within the British legal system, very high up. And this isn't a spoiler. But it turns out that they're basically operating death squads, that where there are miscarriages of justice as they see it, these senior judges and police officers are sorting, you know, putting things straight. And she, you know, is obviously horrified because this goes against everything that she believes in. And it becomes obvious that it's even worse than she thought. And she gets involved in all sorts of blood and guts kind of experiences over the first three books as she gets dragged deeper into this conspiracy. I was going to kill her off at the end of it. And by the time I'd written the third book, I was too much in love with it. So I I gave her a reprieve and book five is coming out in February where she's in Sweden Mm -hmm. on the trail of a serial killer.
0: A Conan Doyle had to bring back Sherlock Holmes at the uh, protestations of his uh, readership.
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, you don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg, I guess for me, it was, I mean, I didn't, you know, it wasn't so much commercial at that point. I just thought she had more to do you know what i mean she had more to, i had, i thought there was more from her i took it pretty close you know she had the glock
0: in her hand
1: but i did
0: i understand that you know
1: i did a sort of i did a little bit of misdirection and you know saved the day
0: i, I don't mind asking you about stella because as you know i like to listen to my guests tell me about their characters and how some of their weaknesses actually become their strengths or their flaws become some of their strengths. You've had a chance to analyze your girl here, Stella, a little bit. What do you think makes her special and what do you think in the tragedy brings that out? That's a very good question. I mean, she is a fairly terrifying figure. I mean, she straddles, in
1: terms of genres, you know, she's almost straddles a line between vigilante fiction and straightforward police procedurals, you know, and in fact, her journey has been very much from one to the other. She doesn't take any nonsense from anyone she never runs from a fight you know and she is absolutely all for justice in fact the same with with Ford you know my other detective kind of protagonist you know she's been very sort of you know emotionally scarred and she's pulled her life around after you know all the sort of horrors of her family life she also has been through this this kind of professional baptism baptism of fire to the point that what matters for her is the case and, you know, the high ups and the brass and the, the bureaucrats, whoever is in her way, she can more or less say, I've, I've faced down worse people than you. It, you know, and so in terms of her detective skills, that's just she's kind of a, a grafter. She doesn't have what you might call a superpower in terms of being a detective, but her strength of character, you know, what she's overcome, including, I would say, looking death in the face, her own ha- has given her this absolute fearlessness which I think is pretty helpful in terms of the kind of villains that she's up against.
0: Uh, Kind of detour into her a little bit before we talked about D.I. Ford, and I'll say it five times through the rest of this show (laughs) to to make up for my wrong, my wrong one, you know, call it a brain fart, call it whatever, but I wanted to just make sure that I got it right. I apologize. You know, it is your character and I didn't say it right. But D.I. Ford, let's get into his world a little bit without giving away the, you know, the secret sauce, but tell me a little bit about his story and about what the stories are going to look like.
1: Well, you know, we've we've sort of talked you and I about, you know, the idea where the the cops have superpowers. And I sometimes feel there's this sort of choice you make as an author between whether you have a kind of superhero or an everyman kind of a cop. Again, as a cop, he's not fast track. You know, he's someone who's made his way up on the street from the lowest level doing ordinary crimes. And he's now a detective inspector. So, which is, pretty high up in, in the sort of British legal system a month before the first book starts. But what has utterly um, scarred him and is that uh, six years before the action of Shadow Ground takes place, his wife died in a climbing accident. They were climbing together, and the real engine of his character is that he caused the accident. He pushed her into trying a route that was more advanced than perhaps they were ready for, and he knew how to press her buttons because she's very competitive. So he's like, well, you're not chicken, are you? And so she she agrees to do the route. Again, no spoiler, because it happens on the first page of the first book. She drowns. It's a sea stack. So it's one of these big columns of rock, you know, not too far off the shore, separated by the tide coming in. And she dies. And he manages to get out to call the Coast Guard. And, you know, they say, your wife's drowned. And he goes into this kind of fugue state for a few seconds. He just, his brain checks out. And he's been living with this guilt ever since. Not only that, but he has a, at the time he had a young son, Sam, who was eight years old. Lou, that's his wife. She's saying, You've got to save yourself for Sam. You know, someone's got to look after him. I'm, you know, I'm done for. Because you can't save me, but save Sam. So he's never told Sam the full story. So he's been lying to his son about what happened. So he's absolutely tortured by two kinds of guilt the, the guilt that he killed his own wife and the guilt that he hasn't. Being honest with his son who is now 15 and going through adolescence so they're striking sparks off each other you know they're butting heads clashing antlers how though the accident affected Ford professionally is that he just has this he believes that he has this feel for killers you know he heads up major crimes unit which is homicides basically and he feels this connection with killers now whether it's all in his head or not we're not sure but he certainly feels that Senses when he's in the presence of someone like him, who has taken another life, and in a way, a bit like Stella, you know, he has this absolute pull, this laser focus on delivering justice for the the victims of homicides. Because I think he's kind of flagellating himself for not having been able to save his own wife. That he is driven. You know, that it's almost like he's on this treadmill. If he could just solve one more murder, he can just chip away a little bit at the guilt he feels. And this is a sort of arc of his character that goes across several books. And even if it eventually is resolved, the the, the lies he's been telling to his son are not going to you know, he won't be let off the hook. I mean, you know what's like as an author too, you, we love to heap troubles on the heads of our main characters, you know. Otherwise, you know, a life that's, you know, untrammeled by upsets isn't very interesting to read about.
0: Not at all. And to your point, uh, what you just said, I'm at your website and it says uh, Inspector Ford is called in to investigate the murder of a young nurse and her son. There are a few clues and no apparent motive, but Ford can sense a serial killer at work. And this is what you're saying, that his, his senses have become maybe heightened or it's brought out those sentences after the loss of his wife. And he feels that he can do this in order to maybe atone for his uh, missteps earlier.
1: Yeah. That word atone, I think, you know, this book, this series, this character is all about atonement and it ripples out because there are other characters who in their own way are flawed, you know, it's a small sort of ensemble piece. So there are maybe six characters in his inner circle, I call them the team. I mean, again, you know, we have to take liberties of poetic license. So, I mean, on a major serial killer investigation, you would have hundreds of hundreds of detectives Involved, and we, you know, we've got six and a few civilian investigators, you know, police staff investigators. But people kind of accept that within the sort of limits of of what we're trying to to achieve. It is this idea of atonement that that runs through, and actually fractured families. I, I mean, I was reading a quote the other day by some author who said, if you look at most novelists' work, they're always writing the same book, and there's a theme that runs through them. And if I look at Gabriel Wolfe and Stella Cole and Inspector Ford, each one in their own way has a completely not dysfunctional but a fractured family Or well, they come from a fractured family or it's always about that and with ford in particular the storylines tend to be about families keeping secrets even the first one which is the most kind of bloody and if you like you know out of character sort of idea of the serial killer really they are about secrets that get out of hand and in a way that makes it I think closer to reality you know this is not going to be you know one serial killer investigation after another I mean it Salisbury is a small place I mean our population is about 35,000 I think it would kind of feel a bit
0: weird anyway there's a joke amongst us writers that there's more homicides in finland in fiction accounts than in actual in the actuality in history, yeah. yeah um yeah. was it uh, maybe i'm wrong about finland no i think i might be right either that or sweden i apologize oh
1: sweden is i mean if you went to sweden as it's portrayed in novels i mean that you couldn't move without tripping over a dead body i think
0: then it, then it was sweden was it stig Larsson? was it yeah te- is it was that based in sweden Yes. Okay, and then Sweden. Got, yeah, sure. and
1: you've got Henning Mankell. and you know, right. there's also, I, I love kind of Scandi noir, as they call it over here, and Swedish, you know, Nord, Nordic fiction is just – I like the mood of it.
0: It doesn't help for sleeping at night. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no, true. No, not at all. Uh, so how many books are out there already in uh, the DI? For Ford? Well,
1: Shallow Ground has just come out um, a couple of weeks ago, um, doing really well, so that's encouraging. The second book is called Land Rights, and that comes out next April. And Congratulations! I, thank you. Just finished the third book, which has the working title of Plain Dead, and that will come out next autumn. By which time, I hope we've signed another deal for another three books, but you know that will depend on the sales. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing with it, certainly initially, is that you know Salisbury is kind of interesting place. You know, p- most people would know it if they know it at all because. In itself, it has the cathedral and, you know, we had the Novichok uh, thing a couple of years ago, the sort of Russian agents who nerve-gassed this former military intelligence officer called Sergei Skripal. And they made up this ludicrous idea in a press conference that they'd come to visit the cathedral. But we also have Stonehenge up the road. It's a massive Stone Age monument. And, and I'm setting each book in a different aspect of the city. So the first one was about the hospital. We had this big general hospital. The second one was about the sort of aristocratic landowners and poachers and, you know, people on the land who shouldn't be. And the third one is about the army, which is, you know, Salisbury is a kind of military town. We have headquarters of the UK army just up the road. And there's this amazing village called Ember, which was taken over by the Ministry of Defence, I think, in nineteen forty three. And they cleared out all the residents and they took it over for preparation for war. You know, exercises. US troops were there. And after the war, they never gave it back. And it's still used now for urban warfare training. And you can go up there, as I have done, and you can go around it, even when it's closed because they're doing live firing exercise. Look down into this village with these weird houses. They've got no glass in the windows. There's nothing in them. They're just shells, just these empty black windows. And I just, the idea came to me of this dead soldier in the middle of a village you know, why, how did she get there? And I worked back from that image to the story and
0: everything surrounding it. That's going to be fun. Are you going to continue to write in Gabriel Wolf?
1: Yeah, in fact, I'm working on a new one at the moment called Crooked Shadow, which returns to pick this saw that he has of his completely tortured past. He's one of three siblings. Two of them are still living. And it turns out that somebody who was without giving too much away on the law enforcement side of things when he was younger and should have been looking out for his family, was doing the complete opposite. And because it is, well, we, we use the word vigilante fiction. It's interesting because the more of them I've written, and this will be number 12, it's almost starting to morph into crime fiction. His approach is becoming more light. You would find, you know, there's a lot more interaction with the police and um, there's even been a kind of joint episode where he and Stella were working on, a, on an operation together.
0: How did they bump into each other?
1: Well, in the original trilogy for Stella, there was a point where they needed a kind of mop-up operation. And I thought, who better than an off-books government-employed assassin? Just, <laughs> a, you know, total deniability. So they meet. And then a few years later, I thought it'd be great to repay the favor. It reminds me of, now I'm going to forget all the name, Michael Connolly. Okay. So you've got Harry Bosch. Now, isn't his stepbrother the guy? Yeah. Mickey, Mickey Haller. Haller. The uh, Lincoln lawyer. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I devoured both of those series. And I think it's like, couldn't find Harry Bosch number five or 15 or whichever one it was. And it's because it's Mickey Haller number two or whatever. And it's the two strands of that DNA overlap you know or cross and at the intersection you had this particular novel and i just love the fact that he did that and you know my kids both have been so sort of historically into the sort of they call it the, the mcu right the marvel cinematic universe and you have these characters like iron man or spider man or whoever probably mixing my genres horribly or might think that's dc but you know what i mean mm-hmm. they come in and out of each other's stories or there's a group story And people seem to really like it. And I've only had positive feedback from readers when I introduced Stella into Gabriel's timeline. They said, oh, it's fantastic. You know, it's like two for the price of one. So I'm not intending to make a regular feature out of it, but it's a kind of, you know, it's a a nice thing to do. Ford, on the other hand, exists in a completely different world, much closer to reality. Certainly no vigilantism, no crazy gadgets or you know, than Martin versus Ferrari car, car chases. It's all much more grounded in actual police work and police procedure that you would, you know, more or less expect in real life.
0: Yeah. And honestly, Andy, that's my world. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit off air before that I've uh, mm. been an investigator all my life and took a lot of inspiration from my fictional detectives, you know, working whodunits. Mm. And I like the whodunits. Uh, yeah. I, like, I like reading the idea that I'm gathering clues at the same time the uh, protagonist is, although sometimes I, I miss the clues, and or the other times when the protagonist missed the clues and I'm screaming at the protagonist, you just missed that clue. But for me, it's always been about more than anything else. How how does this flawed detective, against many odds, yeah. uh, solve the case?
1: And, you know, I think that's a, a really interesting point that you raised there, John, because I'm now finding that I'm much more interested in writing the whodunits than the kind of vigilante style thing. And I, I think it comes down to what you just said, that typically those sort of, you know, vigilante fiction, maybe even like military fiction. Well, I don't really read that, but it's they're not so much whodunits as what happened, can't do it like or what done it. It's just basically you, you. it's much more like being at the movies. You just watch the main character go through what they do. Shooting, stabbing, whatever, fighting, getting tortured, and then getting back up again. There's no puzzle for the reader, so they are involved, but in a way as a spectator. But with crime fiction, I think it's an opportunity, and I find this because I love reading it as well. I like trying to get ahead of the detective and see if can I can I figure it out before they do.
0: Yeah, that's one of my drivers for real. Um, yeah, that, that kind of floats my boat. You know, as a practicing investigator for forty some years. Uh, I had enough of true crime on my plate. I mean, it was there staring at me every day. You know, after I uh, cleared my desk off and uh, sat down and with a cup of coffee, I had my real life whodunits going on. I found that I really enjoyed the inspiration that, that my fictional characters gave me at night where I could be inspired by their overcoming the obstacles. and. And I could come back to my desk the next day and say, now, what's my silly ass problem again? You know, what am I, <laughs> what am I complaining about? You know, and get by and get through it and get through the case. And I always felt that way. But I know that when I'm reading it, as you, as you just discussed, and, and trying to figure out the clues and try to get ahead of the detective, that is very much a turn on. But, you know, when I'm flipping channels on the TV and I see uh, Tom Cruise, and he's a good actor, but I see him in a Jack Reacher film, I'm saying, oh, no. No, that's okay. You know, I, I'm sure Lee Childs is a wonderful writer. He does a fantastic job, but eh, it doesn't float my boat. It's not really what I what, what makes me excited. I, I know that there's a, a writer that we both know, and also happens to live in your small town of Salisbury, who writes uh, a very wonderful character. But that character, not the writing, but the character just doesn't uh, mm. do it for me. Now, that same writer has written another character who is a, a flawed detective, and boop my my eyes pop open and i i'm all i'm all over that book and i can't wait for the next one to come out you know yeah i mean you're talking about mark dawson who is a
1: sort of friend of mine and does a great job i think interestingly one of the things that kind of almost prompted me to start writing the gabriel wolf series was you know like a lot of people i devoured jack reacher for a while for about 10 10 books 12 books maybe and I kinda of had this realization as I started another one that this guy's basically a terminator. Bullets literally bounce off his chest. There is a famous scene where anyone who's ever handled a firearm or done any research would know it's impossible. He gets shot, I think, by a nine. His petrol muscle is so thick that it basically stops the bullet. And you just at that point you just realize that this guy is never he's completely unstoppable. But you've talked a lot through this chat, you know, about vulnerabilities or flaws or weaknesses, whatever you want to call them. He doesn't really seem to have any at all, unless it's maybe he is a bit kind of commitment phobic. And I just wanted to, I mean, let's just say straight out, I, you know, like you, I'm not going to, nobody's going to bet against Lee Child. I mean, he created or recreated, rebooted this whole idea. But I wanted to try and f- come up with a different twist. And I thought, well, what about somebody who is, Yes, an assassin, special forces. But in fact, Gabriel has PTSD. His family life is a train wreck, he's carrying so much baggage that it's actually impeding his ability at times to do what he should be doing, but he still has to do it. So I guess even then, I was starting to think how do we take somebody who, on paper, has all these kind of, what I call top skills, you know, and yet, and yet, and yet he's waking up. Drenched in sweat at three in the morning, having flashbacks or nightmares or hallucinating when he should be on maneuvers or whatever. you know and I think that's what people are looking for, or some people anyway.
0: Well, and what you've done is you've written what you wanted to write. You're not writing the market in that sense. One of the things that your friend Darren Salisbury says, write the best damn book you can. And that's what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. But you're also writing what you want to read first. And that Gabriel is morphing into more of this crime fiction place. That's where you want to go. Stella, she has legs still. She's going to keep going, right? Mm. Well, they're all tending. Both of those are tending to
1: where I am. I guess, you know, it's my, my own sort of you know, development as a writer. You know, Ford for me now is, I'd be quite happy to keep writing Ford now forever and just stick with him, they are tending to that place where they are crime investigators. I mean, Stella, obviously, that's supposed to be her job. You know, I mean, the interesting thing, which we've not touched on particularly, but except through tangentially talking about Jack Reacher, is how characters age in fiction. And, you know, certain authors took conscious decisions to have their characters age in real time. So I'm thinking of Rebus, you know, Ian Rankin's detective in Scotland, or Kurt Wallander, who is, you know, Henning Mankell's creation. They aged in real time, which is fine. If you're if you're an investigator, you can be a sixty year old investigator. That's fine if you have still got the appetite for it. Being a sixty year old guns blazing off books assassin come badass, which is uh, apparently I read the other day. And Reacher is technically sixty now. You know it starts to stretch the reader's credulity a bit. And I've just been thinking that with Gabriel this week. You know he is forty. Technically, in other words, you know, his birth date as laid down is 1980. So this year he's 40 and I'm trying to help him live in a very super slowed down (laughs) version of contemporary now. So he probably always going to be about 40, but he's having intimations of his own mortality. Which is obviously me, whether it'll make the final book, I don't know. I might edit them all out. But I just find it interesting, you know, if you've got somebody who, it's like some of these Hollywood actors like, you know, Clint Eastwood, you know, they're, they're playing romantic leads up against actresses who are sort of like 30. And at what point do you go, you know, we need to, this character needs to, to take a, a major turn, really?
0: Well, the most famous James Bond just died at the age of 90 years old, Sean yeah. Connery. Absolutely. Now, could you imagine him still tooling around in an Aston Martin and uh, <laughs> skiing off of uh, gondolas? And That's right. Yeah, That's no, right. that wasn't going to happen. But then to see, I think, in Skyfall, Daniel Craig, you know, running like a trained Olympic sprinter, Yeah, I say, okay, that's believable. So that's the way that franchise handled it. They kept they yeah. replacing Bond with a, a younger character. I look at my favorite detectives and Matt Scudder by Lawrence Block and Harry Bosch by Michael Connolly. And they're both septicinarians now. You know, they have to push their Medicare card out of the way in order to show somebody a badge. I discovered
1: Bosch because I, I was actually doing some writing training for a, a- financial company in the UK. And one of the guys was an ex-cop himself, who'd made a big change in his career and gone from detective work, he was on the drug squad and everything, into marketing. And he said, you know, if you're interested, the only cop author who I rate is is Michael Connolly. So well that's a pretty good recommendation. So I got the first Harry Bosch book and I was instantly completely hooked. And it talks a lot about his experiences in Vietnam as a tunnel rat. And I've always been interested in that particular conflict. And I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of really interesting. I never come across any fictional character, but you know, certainly a a detective who'd been in Vietnam. You you get a lot of people with sort of uh, Middle East background. You know, they fought in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I had to sort of start working out all the ages, right, to try and figure out. You know, was he there in the sort of late sixties or right at the end in in sort of seventy-five or whatever?
0: But I thought that was a really good and unusual bit of backstory. Absolutely. Plus, and I'm not sure I've read almost all of Michael Connolly. Um, and he also has a, a problem, too, Harry Bosch, in that his mother was a woman of some questionable morals, and she died in what appears to be a unsolved death. And I don't know that Michael Connolly will ever ever play that card, as long as you know Harry's alive, I don't know. But he also did something interesting with introducing a younger character by the name of Renee Ballard, and, uh, she was you know, in her own standalone mm. and then she then teamed up with Harry, at least for one book and I'm maybe possibly two, I'm not sure, but I guess that's how he solved the Harry problem by introducing a, a much younger detective, you know, who has her baggage as well.
1: Yeah. I think a, a lovely idea. And you, I, sometimes you get the feeling that a character is bigger than the role you've assigned them. I, I feel that with Hannah, Hannah Fellows, the sort of deputy CSI that almost, you know, deputy chief, I should say, almost from the get-go, I realised that I wanted her to be more than just a crime scene investigator. And it, I sort of played around a little bit, stretching the rules and said, well, you know, because Salisbury's a small station and she's got this incredible resume, let's have her go out and do a bit of investigating, a bit of interviewing with Ford that just sort of his boss okays it. She sanctions it and she says, well, you know, as long as Hannah's doing her CSI work, you know, forensic stuff, great. You know, the more the merrier, but it's not coming off my budget kind of thing. Mm. So I I, typical bureaucrat. Typical bureaucrat. And in fact, in the latest one, you talk about going up against the odds. I thought let's really we are gonna put forward under every kind of pressure. So not only has he got the police brass against him on closing this case, he's got the kind of political characters against him and the military brass. So everybody is telling him to shut this case down. They think it's solved. They think they've got the culprit. He's the only one who's not convinced, even though he's got a confession. I mean, he hasn't got a confession out of it. It looks like it's a slam dunk and he's just not convinced. He doesn't feel it. So everyone's saying, close it down. There's no more money. There's no more time. And he's a no, no, no. You know, a friend of mine, good friend of mine has just retired, but he was a detective superintendent, which is, you know, pretty high doing. and certainly did actually hunt down and catch a couple of serial killers, believe it or not, in this neck of the woods. A lot of the things that happened to Ford are things that happened to my friend Sean. Going up against chief constables or assistant chief constables, you know, the real brass hats, getting that sort of treatment or going up against hospital, senior hospital administrators. The great story where he, he basically needed a, a suspect's medical records and this consultant said, I'm a very senior doctor and I'm not going to give them to you. And Sean just said, well, I'm an officer of the coroner and I'm not leaving without those things. So I'm going to give you a little moment to think about what you're going to do. But then if you don't hand them over, I'm going to take them from you physically. And that's going to mean you're going to end up on the floor because I'm bigger than you or you can just hand them over. (laughs) I know. And and this guy, fine, slapped them onto Sean's chest, you know, blap with a folder made some face-saving thing. I mean, Sean's a big guy, you know, he's well over six foot and built to mat. But he said, you know, the coroner in, in England, is like one of the oldest offices in government. It goes back to the sort of 14th century. Every police officer is technically an officer of the coroner and the coroner owns every dead body in the UK. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's a very medieval, literally medieval setup. The coroner owns the dead body. It's the coroner who decides whether they're going to release the body to the family after there's been a suspicious death. And so Sean was saying, I act for the coroner. You know, you might be a hospital consultant. My boss goes right back to like Henry II.
0: Yeah, I'm an, a- I'm an admiral of a ship. And, and the other guy says, well, I'm a, a lieutenant, but I'm of a, uh, of a lighthouse. So you better move your ship five degrees.
1: Exactly. So I like to ask, I mean, Sean's fantastic. I say things like, okay, this is the setup. What would you do? If you found a body in this condition, in this place, what would you do? And, you know, and he is just like you would be, I'm sure if I was, you know, picking your brains, you know, he's done this job for real for so many years. You know, he will share, you know, such great insights about how it's done that I just couldn't get anywhere else.
0: You know, just a, I I was grinning while you were saying that for two reasons. One, I knew exactly what you're talking about because, you know, I have that technical background. But I could also imagine that conversation over a, a pint or two, and that the people nearby at the bar <laughs> are listening to this conversation and saying, "What the hell are they oh, talking
1: about?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're yeah, absolutely.
0: And for and for you or me, it's a straight face conversation. I know that I've taken to dictation lately. I get a lot more done. I like it better. It's coming from a better part of my brain. Yeah, uh-huh. but. I think about sometimes as I'm walking down a sidewalk and I'm talking into my little <laughs> Sony recorder and people are going by me and they're what? Giving you strange looks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You touched on it during our pre-interview, but let's talk about Hannah Fellows a little bit and how she's going to be a juicy character to play with going forward. So that's somebody else. that I And she's part of the D.I. Ford she series. Is. So yeah, yeah. So let just talk about Hannah a little bit. Would you for me?
1: Yeah, of course. So she kind of emerged
0: in fits and starts, you know, I I
1: had this idea that I wanted there to be someone who was on Ford's level, but, you know, in a different place. And I had the character. I just didn't have her job. You know, at one point she was going to be a freelance kind of consultant, like a profiler. But, you know, the more I looked into profiling, a lot of cops don't rate them and it's changing. Certainly in the UK, I know the the bi they call it, I think it was called the behavioral science unit and now it's called, you know, the investigation support unit or something. The, The most interesting thing about her is this sort of twofold thing that her incredible intelligence which is nothing to do with her aspergers and then her her sort of neuro diverse sort of mindset that she has she gets i have a friend who's a clinical psychologist who has worked with people with aspergers and autism and says there's this thing called hyper focus this ability to become extremely focused to the exclusion of all else it's perfect for her as a, as a crime scene investigator she gets lost down the rabbit hole, almost literally in one of the stories, actually, as to what's going on with the evidence. And in Shallow Ground, which all revolves around blood. She does all this kind of almost of supernaturally clever working out about stuff to do with the blood. She's like, he, Ford calls her Miss No Filter. Uh, you know, she just, she why not? You know, if, if I want to ask him out or if I want to talk about this, that, or the other, I'm just going to talk about it because that's how I am. I took a lot of advice from a couple of people with autistic children and an autistic author who I contacted via Twitter, I think, and asked her if, she, if I could sort of run this idea past her so I would get Hannah's personality or, you know, how her condition might affect her accurate, if you like, or accurate enough. And she is growing, you know, it's really interesting across the three books. She's becoming more assertive, but she's also starting to and this is the real sort of dynamic, I think, of the, the books is she's starting to investigate the accident that cost Ford's wife her life. Now, you take somebody who's hyper focused, is totally unafraid of hurting other people's feelings because he doesn't quite get the idea of what that would actually mean to hurt someone's feelings. He's been in a six, seven year cover up operation and she is almost now actively trying to uncover the truth. She's befriended Sam, who loves her and thinks she's crazy, clever, and helps him with his biology homework. And Ford is saying, "Well, look, look, okay, you're asking me these questions, which I'm not comfortable with, but you're certainly—I don't want you sharing anything with Sam about this. So, you know, everything is kind of on top of him. There's this woman who is fan- a fantastic asset, a real friend you can talk to, and yet she's picking away at the loose threads of his life, if you like. Know? But she has her own thing." There is this thing in the background that she shuts down every time it pops up. And he is starting to get a sense because of his superpower, if you like, he's starting to get a sense of that. So there's this kind of reciprocal tension between them about secret, again, about secrets. And what defines us is sometimes the things that we hate most. And we try and keep them buried, but they have a horrible habit, like bodies of kind of popping up.
0: (laughs) We talk about bodies and and chuckle, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> bit weird, isn't it?
0: I know. So Andy, I'm really glad that we took a deep dive into all your characters and your three series. And we also have talked a little bit about your standalone, I think. But was that off tape? I forget.
1: Uh, it may have been, but, if, but go ahead. It, Give it a shot. Yeah, now. So I wrote this book called Blood Loss, which was a kind of modern retelling of the Dracula story, following along the, the basic plot of Dracula. And using Bram Stoker's kind of technique, so it's all done with, well, he did lots of letters and journal entries because it was, what, the 19th century. I use things like blog posts and emails and texts and online newspaper reports, but it's all chronological. And it just tells the story of how basically the 1%, as they're called, so the, the rich billionaire families of the world are all vampire families, and there's seven of them. And they have become the inner 1% of the 1%ers and they've amassed great wealth and now they are sort of it but also doing what vampires do and they get exposed and then a woman who starts off as a lawyer ends up turning into a vampire hunter because her boyfriend has actually found a way he's got the secret that the vampires have been looking for which is how to survive in daylight and you know he's been working on a thing to do with skin cancer so the vampires want him
0: that's a nice premise. That's a great hook. It kind of
1: works. Yeah. But I, as I said to you off tape, you know, it's, it's so far out of what I do that it was just a, a project of love, shall we call it. And, you know, it's always gratifying when someone buys a copy, but it just, it just sits there and I'm kind of really proud of it and I'm pleased I did
0: it. You know, and, and there are books that I've written that are on my shelf that on a dreary February night, I'll pull off the shelf. I'll just pick a random spot and I'll read something, and it gives me goosebumps. And I say, boy, am I glad I wrote that. Now, yeah,
1: yeah. did Why it not? have
0: to be uh, a New York Times bestseller or, you know, number one Amazon hit? No, it had to be something that I wrote that I enjoy. And on a, on a dreary February night, I can sit down there, pull it off the shelf, go anywhere in it and say, oh, I really like that. So, you know, that you have that book. Uh, and that's not to say that you can't still do something with it, you know, uh, in terms of marketing it as a standalone yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, it's not to say that you can't, but that you still like it, and it was something that you wrote, and it came out of your head, and it's out there for the world. That's fantastic, and I think that's a great. That's great. I mean, you know, I write crime fiction, thrillers with my Marsh O'Shea series, but my very first book was fantasy baseball,
1: mm-hmm. and it was
0: about a uh, middle-aged man who uh, perfected a magical pitch-throwing batting practice to little leaguers. Mm-hmm. Now, what do the two have in common? You know. <laughs> But it was in my head and had it come out. And yeah. that, that book still gives me goosebumps when I read it. But as I promised you, Andy, it's not about me. It's, it's, it's about you. How can people reach you? And how can they find out more about all of your series and your standalone? Well, I've got two sites, if
1: I can be green, and offer two routes in. One is my own website, which is just andymaslin.com. But I'm also a founding author of a new book lovers community site called Binge Books, which just launched in the US last week. And you can order books there. Your books may I- indeed be on there as well, John. And you can choose your own retailer. You know, you can sort of make reading lists. You can leave reviews. You can share ideas. You can binge through different series. But you choose how you want to buy it. So it's, it sort of points you in the direction. So andymazlin.com or bingebooks.com would be how people can find
0: me. Send me that link. I will. I will. Okay. I really like that idea. I like that idea a lot because I would like to read an author say just for instance i pick up an author mid-series and if i find that i'm attracted to that character a flawed detective usually i'll stop i'll absolutely stop yeah, yeah. and then i'll go back mm. and go to the first book and start yeah. reading in sequence until i get to that point because mm-hmm. there's there's a reason for the series there's a reason for a character arc there's a reason for you know the growth of the writer as a writer as well hmm and I, I just enjoy doing that. I've taken to uh, a couple writers that way, and I really enjoy it. So, you know, this idea of bingebooks.com? Yeah. What a wonderful idea. Yeah, send me that link. And I'll, I'll also make sure to include that on my show notes. Andy Maslin, M-A-S-L-E-N.com and bingebooks.com. Yeah. And uh, I will say for the fifth or sixth time, I really enjoy the idea of re- getting started on the di. Ford. There you series. Are. Three for three. <laughs> there. I, I had to, you know that. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, is there anything that I failed to ask you that you think I should?
1: Wow, that's a good question. Only, I, I guess I just have this love of Scandinavian fiction. I, Like you were just saying, I picked up a Kurt Vallander novel by Henning Manker in the middle of the series, thought, wow, this is fantastic. Went back to the beginning, read them all in sequence. And just recently, I discovered the Martin Beck series have you come across no i think you would love it martin beck uh, was uh, written in the 60s would you believe so it was almost the very first of these kind of modern style police procedurals where it wasn't some aristocratic detective who just sort of solved everything out of his brain very much about the interplay between politics and crime and society written by two journalists actually a husband and wife team i try and pronounce their names per valer and Mai schwerval It looks like Per Walu and Madge Chowal. But anyway, Martin Beck is the name that's easiest to Google. Again, 10 books and you're done. None of this sort of 25 and counting. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant books. Again, he ages in real time. So we see him at the beginning of the 60s as a sort of rookie detective. And he ends up in charge about 10 years later. And it just absolutely blew me away. You know, some of it's a little bit dated, but you can see lots of the modern scandinavian drama even on tv like the bridge which i know has been remade in the u.s you know they all have martin beck in their dna
0: martin beck that's uh, a new one for me and i say that that's a new one for me and that's why i always ask about this because if i didn't ask i wouldn't know so but andy i thank you so much for coming on the show today it was really a pleasure having you on and i thank you very much thank you it's been really great to chat Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. Our guest next week is Harriet Gold. Harriet graduated from the University of South Florida with a B.A. in criminal justice. She was sought out by Equifax Claim Services upon graduation. She's also worked with Progressive Insurance as a special investigator, but more importantly, has owned Gold Investigations with offices in Fort Lauderdale and Atlanta, Georgia, working all matters of civil and criminal investigations. She has sat on the board of NALI and is a member of countless PI associations. Harriet is a friend and a longtime colleague. Looking forward to this podcast next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.